Talo Falaba, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Coming up, Cook Islands looks to import medicinal cannabis as early as next month. The board can issue license to pharmacists and authorize them to import medicinal cannabis. Also, a new report card reveals how well fish stocks are being managed worldwide. And later on, there are a few things that do continue to need improvement, and that's commitment to the ecosystem approach to fisheries management. Lydia Lewis caught up with the one and only Mr. Henry Puna, the Secretary General of the Pacific Islands Forum. Medicinal cannabis products could be available in the Cook Islands as early as June. It follows a non-binding referendum in August last year when the Cook Islands voted in favour of allowing the use of medicinal cannabis. Caleb Fotheringham reports. Secretary of Health Bob Williams says cannabis products could be available for medicinal use by June, but will definitely be available by the end of the year. Mr Williams says importation of medicinal cannabis will begin after the Ministry of Health reactivates its pharmacy board. The board can issue licence to pharmacists and authorize them to import medicinal cannabis or any form of medications to support people or patients who require these type of medicines. Mr Williams says the board is planning on meeting next month and once all the necessary documentation is approved, patients needing medicinal cannabis should be able to access it. However, he says existing legislation still needs to change. There has to be some amendments to be done to the regulations and, of course, to the Narcotics and Control Substance Act before some of the decisions can be effected. 62% of respondents voted yes to the referendum question, should we review our cannabis laws to allow for research and medicinal use in August? Since then, the government has created a committee to look into the rules and regulations of medicinal cannabis. The Cook Islands Prime Minister, Mark Brown, says the committee was in the middle of reviewing current laws. They are working on a policy paper which will enable us then to identify what particular legislative changes will be required to bring this into effect. However, medicinal cannabis campaigner Steve Boggs says progress has been too slow. What's disappointing is the Prime Minister, Mark Brown, said he was going to act very quickly. And that was back in August. And then he he was saying that he needed to have all the petitions settled so they could form a cabinet. But that's been a couple months also that they've had a cabinet, and I still don't see any progress. Steve Boggs says he wants a stopgap measure to allow designated growers to cultivate cannabis while the law changes. The Cannabis Committee Chair, Tinka Ilikana, previously told RNZ Pacific the committee was looking at potentially changing legislation so cannabis could be cultivated for medicinal use. A new report card on the performance of the world's tuna fisheries management organisations shows significant improvements are marred by a need to bring ecosystem considerations into management strategies. Next week, the United Nations will convene in New York to evaluate how governments are fulfilling their commitments under the UN Fish Stocks Agreement. These include being committed to the conservation and management of fish stocks based on precautionary science-based management as laid out in the agreement, which was adopted in 1995. 
Ahead of the New York meeting, the Pew Charitable Trust has evaluated how the world's five regional fisheries management organizations have fulfilled their duties since the last conference in 2016. Kuroi Hawkins spoke to Pew's International Fisheries Director, Grant Lee Galland, about the scorecard. Well, one thing we're seeing is a, a pretty substantial change from 2016, which is the last time this meeting got together at the United Nations headquarters in New York to review the progress of these fisheries bodies around the world. Um, and there has been a substantial improvement really in their um, activities from 2016 to, to seven years later in 2023. And they'll be getting together again next week to to renew that review. <laughs> and um, and we also wanted to redo our scorecard. And that's where we have seen a, a real improvement in the scores over those seven years. It's always a case of improvement, but still more work to be done with these things. Where where is the where is the work to be done still? Yeah, and that's absolutely the case here as well. And so, where we've seen the most improvement are issues related to combating illegal fishing, for example. Um, and that's something that you know everyone can champion. There's never really anybody opposing um, trying to improve our our record on illegal fishing. Uh, but there are a few things that do continue to need improvement, and that's um, a commitment to the ecosystem approach to fisheries management. And what that means is um, considering not just the species that you're targeting, whether that's a yellowfin tuna or a swordfish, but instead considering the impact of those fisheries on the entire ecosystem. Um, and that may be the impact on bait populations for um, squid that's used on swordfish longline fisheries or small sardines that are used on um, bait boat uh, pole and line fisheries or it may just be the impact of the fishery itself on bycatch and other um, non-targeted species so that's that's one area that still needs some improvement and then we would like to see a continued commitment or a renewed focus on the precautionary approach where Um, That's sort of a technical term that um, fisheries managers use to ensure that their policies are um, forward thinking and and science based and will um, and should ensure that the fisheries continue to be sustainable uh, over a whole host of possible future natures. I had the um, privilege of being able to attend the Pacific Tuna Commission um, summit in Da Nang um, last year, and it was quite quite an opener. A lot of people around the table there, and it was interesting to see the different different perspectives and where people are coming from. In terms of the Pacific Tuna Tuna um, RFMO and what it's achieved, um, one of the things that's been a, a sticking point is its a reluctance to move on to the science-based approach to fisheries management. Um, is is that anywhere in the realm of, of some of the stuff that you've looked at in your scorecard, or am I going off on a completely different tangent? No, that's absolutely accurate, and I'm, I'm glad you were able to uh, observe that meeting because it was an important moment for the Pacific in that they did um, adopt the structure of what will become a a harvest strategy, a a precautionary science-based harvest strategy. But you're right, there was reluctance to commit to implementing that strategy. And and one of the big advantages of that form of fisheries management is that 
It includes automatic harvest rules that um, limit the catch automatically based on science and without political negotiation. So we would like to see them uh, commit to implementing their new structure, and that way we know that the, some of the politics will be taken out of the, the fisheries management process in the Pacific. And um, I'm hopeful that that will happen over the next couple of years on, for example, skipjack tuna. That's the, the main species that we get in our, in our cans across uh, North America, for example, but also really worldwide. Um, and hopefully they'll also expand that commitment to other important species as well. Going back to the United Nations fish stocks uh, agreement, um, you, you're mentioning in your scorecard here, not some countries not meeting important legal obligations. What are you talking about there? Um, well, the our scorecard was mostly focused on the activity of the full regional bodies, so not any specific um, governments that have or haven't done something. And um, But what, what we've seen is, and you'll see here um, throughout the scorecard, a, a, a series of you know, kind of stoplight um, colors associated to to each of the areas that where we tried to offer them a grade. Um, but we are seeing that they're not necessarily following what they promise they will do, whether that's under this United Nations agreement, which is a broad treaty covering many countries around the world, or whether it's under their individual regional bodies that cover just a, a single ocean. And so what we would like the members of these bodies to do is follow through with implementing what they've promised to do by signing on to those treaties and signing on to the resolutions or recommendations that um, the bodies make individually. Summing up, um, what would be best outcome for you coming coming out of this review coming up? Great question. I I think that we would like the members, the UN members who are party to this um, to this body, this treaty, to continue to commit to the precautionary approach, as I mentioned, to double down on our commitment to harvest strategies and to have a renewed focus on the ecosystem-based approach to fisheries management. These are three areas that could really benefit from strong recommendations from this meeting to all of its members, and then from each of those members to the regional fisheries bodies where they uh, participate. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. And obviously, we'll follow up once the meetings happen and, and see what actually has come out of it. That would be great. Thank you. The Secretary General of the Pacific Islands Forum says Australia's position as the world's second largest exporter of coal is a concern. But he says the Pacific's relationship to the Aussies is a work in progress. Canberra is planning to jointly bid with Pacific nations to host COP31, the United Nations Climate Summit in 2026. Henry Porner spoke with Lydia Lewis about the issues and other topics facing the region while he was in Auckland. How can Pacific Island countries even think about supporting the world's second largest exporter of coal, Australia, and its bid to host COP? That is a work in progress, I guess. Uh, I believe that uh, you know, through conversations, through engagement, we can uh, somehow have an influence on our friends. But yeah, it is a concern. However, we see some positive signs uh, from the new government. While some of us, you know, maybe are willing to sort of condemn what is happening, I think it helps to talk quietly and engage 
continuously with Australia to see how they can get off the bandwagon of uh, this polluting substance. Have you been talking quietly with them? Have conversations been progressing well? There are always conversations among our leaders and with Australia, but those conversations are best left out of the public limelight because you can't have any influence or make any progress you know, if everything that you do is put out into the public arena. It's very sensitive and we need to treat it with caution. Slowly, slowly. On that note, now to regionalism. Why is it so important to you? Regionalism is the key and the foundation for the Pacific to have any influence on the global stage. And our 2050 strategy is based on that premise, that if we are to have any influence, not just on the global stage, but also with managing our resources now and into the future, and managing the geopolitical interest that is now very much focused on the Pacific region. We need regionalism to be very strong. In terms of other topics as a whole, I mean, there are issues in terms of cooperation of China and then the West Papua and then also deep sea mining, all of those issues where people have different views. How would you sum up the different views of the Pacific on those big issues in light of regionalism? Always keep in mind, you know, when you're asking something like that, the forum comprises of 18 sovereign states and they have every right to decide as they wish. And that is part of the, I guess, the sensitivity of working with such a huge collective of sovereign states. But I believe that the 2050 strategy is our framework for committing everybody to the same direction and to the same priorities. On that note, how do you hold the line on regionalism and political will? As I said earlier on, it is a matter of critical importance for the region. We have to continue to hold on to it. Yes, you know, there may be differences of views at times. That should be expected. You know, it happens in every family. But uh, we have to continue to cling on to regionalism and particularly our 2050 strategy. And China, the last time we spoke, you mentioned that it is your, you know, duty to also try and get China on board as well. Where, where is that at? Well, we've had a conversation uh, with the departing ambassador, Chinese ambassador from uh, Suva. We had a conversation along those lines. I know it's something new for them. But, you know, I respect them. They're my good friends. And, and I will continue advocating for that. That, you know, true leadership to me means, you know, dealing with everybody and accepting everybody regardless of their status. And I hope to see some real progress on that issue. And that's our show for today. To listen back, head over to rndi.com slash programs or you can download us on Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. From myself and the team here at RND Pacific, to Fasui Fua.